Um, hey, I'm Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us, I want to say uh, welcome. And we have been, throughout this Christmas season, in a series we've called Nativity, where we've been looking closely at the life of Jesus through the lens of some people who were there. And even though Christmas is over and most of you have kind of started packing up your Christmas decorations... No, you haven't. You're slackers, just like me. Yeah, I, I keep them like halfway through January. I figure, like by the time you hit February, it's obnoxious, but you're good until about halfway through. At any rate, we're going to continue the Nativity series this morning, and we're going to talk about today the wise men. And, and even though Christmas is past, this is really appropriate because most biblical scholars believe that the wise men didn't actually show up on the day of Christ's birth. They show up sometime later. That's what the, the, the scriptures seem to indicate, that they come after the big event, in kind of the general season, but after the event. We're not sure how much after, if it was days or weeks or months, but sometime later the wise men show up. And so this morning we're going to dive into this nativity story one more time and kind of take a look at it through the lens of the wise men. And it's just kind of a quick aside, a few weeks ago in our middle school ministry, uh, Greg Levinson, who's one of our volunteers, was teaching our middle school kids about the wise men, and he was telling them, like, the wise men weren't there, they're not a part of the nativity in the way you think they were. Um, in fact, he confessed to them, and Greg's a bit of a ham, that whenever he comes across a nativity scene that has wise men in it, he removes them. And so just beware if Greg comes to your house um, that he may change your nativity scenes. And my eighth grade daughter was listening closely and actually started to do that around our house. And we found our, our one nativity scene with the wise men off to the side after Greg's teaching, proving that middle school kids do listen. And so if you have a heart for middle school kids and want to be a part of shaping um, middle school lives, they listen to what you say and then they do it. And, and so the title of our sermon today is How Greg Levinson Ruined Christmas um, for the Teixeiras. No, actually today um, we're diving back into the birth of Jesus and we're going to talk about responding to him. Responding to Jesus. Responding to the birth of this king. Responding to Messiah, Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem. And today we're going to get a glimpse kind of through the story of the wise men or the magi at how some people in Jesus' day responded to his arrival and then how we're called to respond to his arrival as followers of Jesus today. And so Matthew chapter 2, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're going to go from verses 1 through 11. We're going to take a look at this journey of the magi. And this is how Matthew begins. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Matthew begins this section of his story by setting the scene for us with some historical background. He gives us a little phrase. He says, during the time of King Herod. And for us, that's just a phrase that most of us read past. And yet for first century Jewish readers, they would understand all the implications of that little phrase. During the time of King Herod. Because during the time of King Herod, 
There was a world empire in the East called the Persian Empire, sometimes called the Medo-Persian Empire. And at one time, several centuries before um, Jesus, this was the largest, most powerful empire in the history of the world. Historians believe that at its height, the Medo-Persian Empire was the greatest and strongest and most powerful the world has ever known. And at the very center of this enormous world empire was a tribe of people called the Magi. And the Magi functioned sort of as the priests of this empire. They were, they were skilled in astronomy and astrology. And much, much like the priests in, in Israel, the Magi not only had spiritual significance, spiritual influence over the empire, they were also very political as well. I don't know if you've noticed this, but throughout the history of the world, religion and spirituality always intersects and influences politics. As much as we try to separate the two, it is virtually impossible. They have always influenced one another. And so the Magi, these priests of this empire, they also have a lot of political influence as well. In fact, they were so politically powerful that no king could be crowned in the Persian Empire without the consent and approval of the Magi. The largest and most powerful empire in the history of the world, and the Magi held a trump card for any king that was to be crowned. That's how significant and powerful they were. And so they became known as sort of these world-renowned Persian kingmakers, the Magi. And so again... During the time of King Herod, during that time, it just so happens that there was some conflict between the Persian Empire and the world's largest empire of that day, the growing and ever-expanding Roman Empire. And I'll bet you never will guess where these two massive world empires, the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire, overlapped. Where they kind of intersected right in this little place called Israel. You see, if you look at the map here, one of the things that historians note is that this little strip of land, Israel, where it's, where it's located, it's like a land bridge between Europe, Asia, and Africa. If you were trying to travel by land from Asia or Europe into Africa, you would travel right through Israel, this little teeny strip of land. And it was so important. It was so important for trade and economy. This is a very politically um, essential piece of land to control and occupy. And so a lot of battles were fought over this space. And so in 40 BC, 40 years before our story today, 40 years before the birth of Jesus, Israel was occupied by the Romans. But it was attacked by the Persians. And the Persians defeated the Romans. In 40 BC, the Persians regained control of Israel. Now it just so happens that at that time, um, in the northern kind of rural area of Israel called Galilee, uh, there was a man who was ruling. His name was Herod. Herod was ruling in Galilee. And just before the Persians came to attack and take over Israel, Herod got in a boat and he sailed for Rome. And he stood before the Roman Senate and he said, you want to regain control of Israel? 
I'm your man. Support me, back me, and I will go and I will win Israel back for Rome. And the Senate believed him, and that's exactly what they did. And so for three years, Herod battled the Persians until he finally, in 37 BC, 37 years before our story today, won. And he defeated the Persians, and he took Israel back for Rome and the Roman Senate was so thrilled they were so ecstatic that they let Herod rule in Israel and they gave him a title and the title that the Roman Senate issued to King Herod Herod the Great was this King of the Jews Herod the Great King of the Jews so now with that as our backdrop let's go back to verse 1 After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east, kingmakers from Rome's sworn enemy, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now can you imagine, friends, the stir and scandal and uprising when these magi came rolling into town to talk about a new-born king, another king of the Jews. And just so you know, they probably did not roll in real subtle-like. We have this, this image that the magi kind of cruised in, just three of them on camels with their gifts tucked away in their knapsacks, like, you know, like real low-key, no one even noticed them. That's not what history tells us. History tells us that when the magi traveled, they traveled with a slew of Persian cavalry. They came in full force. And for some reason, um, we have adopted this idea that there were how many magi, how many wise men? Three. Why? Why do we think there were three? Because there were three gifts. But, but history tells us that there were probably more than three. That there was probably quite a big entourage. We do not know, but we do know that most of the time when the Magi traveled, it was a big deal. And so all of a sudden, right into Herod's kingdom, the place, this hot-button region where the Persians and the Romans have been fighting, come these magi, these Persian kingmakers, and they say, there's been a baby born, the new king of the Jews, and we're looking for him. And this leads to the very first response to the birth of Jesus that we find in this story. And it's in verse 3. It's the response of Herod. And we're told, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed he was disturbed of course he was and and disturbed is actually a massive understatement here the greek word translated disturbed there is the word tarasso and it means panicked afraid troubled scared freaked out terrified it's the same word that's used to describe how the disciples feel when they're out in a boat on the sea of galilee in the wind and the waves in the middle of a storm and then jesus comes walking to them on the water on the waves and they think he's a ghost and the passage says and the disciples were tarasso terrified scared to death and so the question is Why is Herod so terrified? Why is he so panicked and disturbed in this moment? I'll tell you why. Herod is freaked out because suddenly his privilege, his power, his authority, his control are all being threatened by the coming kingdom and kingship 
of this baby boy called Christ, Messiah, Deliverer, rightful King of the Jews. See, this is the very first response to Jesus we find in this story, and here's the response. Herod was threatened. He was threatened by Jesus. And this is the first point I want to make, friends, and listen to it carefully. The kingdom and kingship of Jesus will threaten the power and position and privilege of every other kingdom in this world. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, what does that have to do with me? Because I'm pretty sure I don't have a kingdom. Haven't been a king for a while. Well, let me say this to you. Do you have a kingdom? Oh, yes, you do. In fact, any place that you have authority, control, decision-making power, responsibility in this world... That's a kingdom. Inasmuch as you control your life, your life is your little kingdom. There's a kingdom of you. There's a kingdom of Dave. I have my own little kingdom. There are things and resources and decisions and places where I have power and influence and control and that's the kingdom of Dave and you've got one just like I've got one. Your bank account and your investments, that's your financial kingdom. Your house or property or land, that's your physical kingdom. All the stuff you own, the stuff you got for Christmas, the stuff in your closets, the stuff stored in your garage or attic or basement or storage units, that's your material kingdom. The amount of power or authority you have at work, that's your professional kingdom. The relationships that you have, that's your relational kingdom. And here's the deal. Jesus comes to rule and reign over it all. Feeling a little threatened? He wants to rule your kingdom, all of it, every dollar, every decision, every possession, every ability, because your gifts and talents and abilities, they're all part of your kingdom, they're all under your control, they've been given to you to manage every relationship, every activity you engage in, Jesus has come to be king, ultimate ruler, and the more your control yields to his control. The more your will yields to his will. That's called the kingdom of God advancing in your life. That's called Jesus being Lord, which, by the way, is the most basic and central confession of the Christian faith. Jesus is Lord. He is king. He's in charge. He is calling the shots over it all. But Herod, you see, was a person who was lord over a whole lot of stuff. That's a pretty big kingdom for him to surrender. He had a lot to lose. And friends, this morning I want to suggest that maybe we are more like Herod than sometimes we'd like to admit. Because there are some decent-sized kingdoms in this room. Some good-sized portfolios, some extremely smart people with influence and power and authority. There are a lot of talents and gifts and abilities sitting right here in this place. And maybe if we really understood that Jesus came to be king, the extent of what lordship of Jesus really means, 
If we really understood all that he wanted of us and from us, maybe we'd be a little more threatened. Maybe we'd be disturbed like Herod was. So let me ask you a question this morning, and and this is a great question to wrestle with on New Year's Eve, on the eve uh, of the day where resolutions will be be declared and cast and accepted and stated, where we say, I want to change some things, I want my life to begin to shift from this place to this place, I want to go in a new direction. These are some great questions for us to ask on a day like today. Let 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 me ask you this question. What parts of your life are threatened by Jesus as king. If you were to think about Jesus coming to rule, reign, be fully in control in your life, where would things have to change? Where would you have to surrender? Because right now, your life really isn't lining up with the way he wants to call the shots. Some attitudes that need to change, some thinking, some behaviors the way you spend your time, your schedule, the way you use your resources, your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your money. You see, maybe some in this room have yet to yield to Christ as Lord because you know that when you do, there are some practices in your life that are going to have to change and you're not sure you want them to. And so it's knowing that He wants to be Lord that has held you back from declaring He is Lord and giving your life to Him. If Jesus were King of your life, if He had total control, what would need to change? What would He change? So that's reaction number one. That's response to Jesus number one. Jesus comes to threaten all other kingdoms, including yours and mine. We continue on. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. You see, our next response to Jesus takes us only one phrase further. And all of Jerusalem with him. Now this is perplexing because the question is obviously why would Jerusalem be terrified at the coming of the Messiah? These were people who were waiting for the Messiah. These were people who were praying for Messiah. And now they get word that Messiah has been born and they are celebrating, excited, joyous. And they are disturbed as well. Why? Well, here's the deal. They're disturbed because of Herod. Herod was an insanely jealous and evil ruler. At even the slightest threat to his power, he would not hesitate to take drastic actions. This is a man who, when feeling just the slightest bit threatened, had had killed swarms of people, including his own father, one of his wives, and two of his own sons killed just because he had just a whiff of a sense that they were threatening his power. And so now word gets out, Messiah has been born, Herod is disturbed, and the people of Jerusalem are more concerned and worried about Herod than they are about Messiah. They were more concerned about what was happening in the world around them than what God was doing in the world around them. 
Friends, here is response number two to the birth of Jesus. Distracted, preoccupied, overwhelmed. Maybe that's some folks in this room here today. Maybe the truth of the matter, if you're really honest, is this. There are some things in this world that you are facing and like the people of Jerusalem, your worry and concern about that, about those things, is overshadowing the fact that God's presence and peace and grace and salvation have come to earth for you. And the question is this. The question this forces us to ask is what's the predominant reality in your life right now? What's the predominant thing that's occupying your thinking, your attitudes, your posture towards life? What is the, the ruling reality in your world these days? Is it something here? Is it something in this world? Is it a situation you face? Or, or is it the fact that the love of God is available to you today through Jesus Christ, this baby born in Bethlehem? You see, the message of Jesus' birth, the message of the gospel is not ignore your problems, ignore the struggles of the world, they don't matter. No, that's not the message. The Bible is so honest and so authentic about the fact that we face real struggles in this world, that they are significant, that they matter. But, but the Bible says time and time again, the number one reality, the lens through which you view everything else must be this. God loves you and he sent his one and only son into this world that you might be saved through him, that the love of the creator of the universe, that his grace is offered to you and that everything else can be seen through that. The, uh, the message of the Bible is this. No matter what you face, no matter what this world throws at you, no matter what your stresses or struggles or concerns are, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. See everything in this world through Jesus. That's response number two. Don't let the world distract you. Don't let the world overwhelm you. Do not let the world take your eyes off of Jesus even when the world is as bad as the world can be. The story goes on. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Friends, this was the predominant passage about the Messiah. This is the passage that they looked to and leaned on and read over and over again, kind of holding on to hope that someday God would send a deliverer, a savior into this fallen, broken, dark world to rescue them. And here he comes. Here he is. They quote the passage. They know he's arriving and yet they do nothing. And response number three to the birth of Jesus we see in this story this morning can be summed up with one word, and it's the word apathy. The kingmakers from the east have come. Christ, Messiah, has been born. And these chief priests and teachers of the law go about their lives as if nothing's changed. You see, we've been looking at a lot of the figures who are in the nativity scene, but let me tell you about some people who you'll never find in the nativity scene. 
these religious leaders. None of them show. None of them search. None of them say, maybe, just maybe he's here. Maybe he's come. The day has finally arrived. They are visibly absent. Friends, the end of that passage in Micah, that prophetic passage in Micah, it closes with these words. These are words about Jesus, words about the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. That is what is being offered to them, and they completely miss it. They completely miss the gift of the Savior of the world. And the question this morning is, what about us? What about you? Is there a feeling of apathy in your faith? Are you just kind of religiously going through the motions of faith? Have you just been kind of caught in that cycle of doing church and kind of doing God and just kind of moving about your life, but you're no longer impacted in a significant way with the fact that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Are you in a season of apathy or stagnation? You find yourself not as vibrant or alive in Christ as you once were or wish that you could be? Are you a lot like these religious leaders who sing the praises, who can quote the passages, but at the end of the day, you just are going through life as if he never came? If that's you today, if you find yourself to be in this place, this kind of spiritual dead zone, if you will, I want to offer you two simple questions. Two questions just to ask yourself. Two questions that if you dig into them, I believe God can use them to pull you back into a place of life and hope and peace and vibrancy with the Lord that you long for and were created for. Question number one is this. Is there something stifling your spiritual life? Is there a sinful pattern or habit that's keeping you from connecting in a deep, regular, authentic way with God, that's holding you back from being the person that God created you to be and longs for you to be? Is there just something in your life that is preventing you from living into the life that God wants you to live? And friends, if there is, if that is you today, name that thing. Get crystal clear on that thing. What is that thing that is preventing you from the life God wants you to have? And if you know you can name it, confess it to a friend, write it down, determine this morning, make a declaration for 2018 that this thing, whatever it is, that has been separating you from deep intimacy with God, that it must stop. And, and, and don't take lightly the challenge to name it clearly, to write it down, and then to speak it to a friend. Because guess what, friends? If you sit here, and some of you are thinking right now, he's talking to me, and, and this is the thing. There is something so clearly in your mind. The thing that's holding me back from God is this. And you've thought it so many times before. And you've wanted to beat it so many times before. And simply 2018 New Year's resolutions is not going to get it done. But one thing that will help it getting it done is writing it down and speaking it, confessing it clearly, not vaguely, clearly to a trusted brother or sister in Christ and saying, would you help me overcome that thing this year? Would you partner with me in helping, helping me overcome this thing? Letting God 
have victory in this area of my life? Is there something stifling your spiritual life? That's question number one. Here's the second question. What stirs your affections for Jesus? This is a simple question, and yet I think it's often overlooked. What stirs your affections for Jesus? What is, what are, what is the thing or what are the things that when you practice them, they really help you engage the love of Jesus more. When you experience them, they motivate you to be more the man or woman God longs for you to be. They remind you of who God is and who he created you to be and what he wants to accomplish in and through you. Friend, what is it that energizes your soul? What are the practices that get you lined up with God and his will and his plans and help you be the person that you know deep in your heart God wants you to be? You see, sometimes in the Christian life, especially when we get apathetic, those practices, they just sort of shift down the priority list. At one time, they were high priority things. They, they were things that we used to, to tackle vehemently and consistently, and now they're just kind of, they've slid down the list, and they, we just don't quite get to them at the, same, um, at the same frequency that we used to. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I would love to do that. I have no idea what those are for me. I have no idea what energizes me. I have no idea what kind of sparks life in my soul. If that's you this morning, friends, then guess what? Hunger for more is for you. Like, this is a class that's targeted right at people just like you. People who have grown apathetic, who've hit a plateau, who are just sort of, you know, sterile in their faith and you want life, you want a spark, this class will help you know yourself, know God, discover how you connect best with God so that you can lean into those things and those places that stir your affections for Jesus. Friends, the other thing I want to say about this, and this one's going to get a little personal, is make church a priority. If you find that you're kind of apathetic in your faith, make church a priority. And I don't just mean coming to church. Coming to church is part of church. I mean engaging the church. I mean finding a place to serve. I mean finding a community group to be a part of. Diving into one-on-one relationships where you can be honest and open and transparent. See, engage the church. And I get it. I understand. I am a pastor. I've been a pastor since I graduated from college. I have never had the option of going to church or not. Like some of you are thinking like, whoa, that's weird. Like there's never really been a Sunday where I wake up and think, should I go today? Maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, you know. It's pretty nice weather, we could go for a hike. That's never, never been a, a question for me. So understand, I am different from you. So I get that, I confess that. And now let me say this. Make church a priority. Gather with God's people because you never know when a song, when a word, when a conversation in the lobby, when even a sermon will touch your heart and God will use it to do something in you. You never know when your presence will do that for someone else. So lean into the church. If you're feeling apathetic, if you're feeling stale, don't pull away. Lean in. That's response number three. And now we get to the final response. It's the response of the Magi, and I believe it's the one we were created for. Here's how Matthew closes this story. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. You see, right away we see that unlike Jerusalem, the Magi are not at all controlled by the fears of Herod. In spite of Herod, in spite of any obstacle, they press on to find Jesus. And in verse 10, we find the third and final reaction to the birth of Christ. Worship. The word is proskuneo, and it literally means to stoop and to kiss. They stoop and they kiss. You see, worship had to do with reverence. It it has to do with adoration and obedience and submission. Proskuneo says, you are in charge. You are in control. You are calling the shots in my life, Jesus. You are Lord. You see, worship of Jesus is so appropriate because of who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is one worthy of being worshipped. And I want to clarify this because sometimes we think worship is getting together and singing a bunch of songs real loud in church or maybe not loud. But the Bible says something different. The Bible Bible says worship is your life. Paul talks about this in Romans 12. Worship is when the lordship and authority and rule and reign of Jesus impacts and begins to take over your life. How do you worship Jesus with your entire life? Make him Lord. Every time Jesus calls the shots in your life, he is Lord and he is worshipped. You see, the lordship of Jesus and the worship of Jesus, they are intimately tied together. Worship is when you bow down before him and say, now he has control of your marriage. Now he has control of how you spend your time. Now he is Lord of your vocabulary and the things you say about people. Now he is king of the way you spend your money. Now he is Lord of your time and priorities and dreams and goals and ambitions in this world. You see, that's worship when Jesus is more and more Lord. Worship is saying, God, you are king of my life and I don't want to rule any of it. It's all yours. All I have is yours. You ever sung that before in church? You ever sung those words in church? All I am or all I have is yours. You see, we sing that. We declare that here together because we long for it to be true. What we're saying is, Lord, I know that I'm still holding on some things. I know that I'm still trying to rule little spots and little areas of my life, but I don't want to anymore. You be king. You be Lord because you are Lord of all and you're Lord of my life. You see, One of the ways that we constantly pull our lives back to a place of worship, to a place of saying Jesus is Lord, is at this table. We come to the table and we take the bread and we take the cup and we say, Jesus, you are Lord, not because you have to be, not because you forced yourself to be, but Jesus, you are King, you are Lord because you deserve to be, because I can trust you to be, because you loved me so much that you gave your one and only son and he was not just born as a baby in Bethlehem but he died on a cross at Calvary so that I could be saved and redeemed and restored into relationship with you Lord and so I make you Lord not because I have to but because I want to but because I choose to you are Lord in response to the grace and love that you've shown me and so we go to the table and we remember that grace we remember that offering 
And in response, we say, Jesus, you are Lord. And maybe today, as you go to the table, you need to bring with you that place in your life where you're threatened, where you're like Herod, where Jesus isn't quite Lord yet, where if he was Lord, there would need to be some work. There would be some change. Maybe today you need to say, Jesus, you are Lord, but I need you to be Lord in this place, in this relationship, in this area, in this habit, in this practice of my life, because I need to change. And so I'm just going to give it to you again. Maybe you need to bring that place that's threatened to Jesus. Maybe you need to bring it an area of your life that's distracted or overwhelmed or preoccupied. Maybe there's a situation that's just consuming your mind and thoughts. And today you need to come and you need to say, God, I'm going to give this to you, not so that I can ignore it, but so I can see it once again through the lens of the cross. Or maybe this morning you find yourself to be here and you walked in just going through the motions. And God says, I don't want to go through the motions again for another year. I don't want to go through the motions with you for 2018. Let's do something real. Let's walk together in a way that brings life and hope and peace and direction. Maybe today you need to come to the table and just make a declaration that 2018 is going to be a different year for you. Not because you're trying harder, but because... You're surrendering more and you're saying, Jesus, be Lord. I'm tired of being apathetic. I'm tired of just being in cruise control mode. I want something greater. Wherever you are today, I invite you to come to this table to remember the death and the resurrection of a God who loves you and who invites you into something greater than this world can ever offer you. So when you're ready, come. Take the bread, take the cup. You can bring it back to your seat. Receive it when you're ready. There's also going to be people up here on either side in the back who love to pray with you, so take advantage of that. If there's something you need to lay down, just practice that the discipline of sharing out loud, of speaking something out loud with people who can partner with you and pray for you and join with you in your struggle or in whatever you're facing. So take a minute, and then when you're ready, come to the table, and we'll receive the elements on our own at our seats. Let me pray. Father, this morning, we gather as a people, we gather as a church, we gather um, to just declare again the most basic and yet profound statement of all Jesus is Lord and we say it God because we we long for you to be Lord of this church that you would rule and reign and direct and guide and lead every single area of our life together and then God we pray that I pray that for myself for my family for my life for those places that need to be changed and tweaked and surrendered God Show those, reveal those, and then by your grace, help me lay those down. I pray that same thing for my friends here today and my brothers and sisters. Thank you, Lord, for this new year and these new beginnings, God. But may we be people that step into not just new beginnings in our own strength, but new beginnings by your strength and for your glory and your kingdom. That's our prayer. We pray together in Christ's name.
Amen.